Welcome to Riot Etiquette, the young radical's guide to barricade etiquette and comportment. I'm your host, Brian. The goal of this podcast is to provide definition and context on terms and ideas used in this new era of protesting. This is not a place to debate whether or not black lives matter. It isn't a place to argue the morality of property damage. It's also not an accelerationist podcast designed to radicalize unwitting strangers. If you're looking for any of those things, feel free to move right along. The idea for this podcast started when it came to my attention a couple weeks ago that a few of my friends, despite being extremely supportive of the ongoing protests and up-to-date on the news from various cities, didn't know what black block meant. The face of protesting in this country has changed, and for the moment at least, that temperature keeps rising. Sharing updates and memes from your various cities on Twitter leaves out critical concepts. It doesn't prepare you for swooping, updated standards of street journalism, or proper tear gas aftercare. It doesn't teach you the new rules, and it does leave you susceptible to misinformation. This podcast is designed for college students who've moved to a new city and are totally out of their depth when it comes to the protests. It's for friends in smaller towns who want to learn more about this new world without lighting their brains on fire trying to decode Twitter. It's for all of us, because unfortunately, the next Kenosha could be anywhere. So the plan for the podcast is to drop a new short episode every few days between now and November, cover a concept or two, provide occasional updates on developments from different cities, and I'm sure I'll end up editorializing some. Winter generally kills movements in this country, so this podcast isn't intended to run for more than a few months. But you know, with an election this fall, anything's possible. I want to be clear up front, everything I'm about to say is rooted in my own experience. I'm currently based in Madison, Wisconsin, and I don't speak for any movement, collective, or organization, uh, not even here. I want to help you understand the reality as I've seen it on the ground, and that means sometimes riffing on how theory intersects with implementation. I'm probably going to get some things wrong. I'm definitely going to miss pieces of definitions, I'm not an authority, and there are plenty of smarter, more diverse voices out there that you can and should dive into if you want to learn about anything I discuss here in more detail. For the first episode today, we're going to start extremely broad with a couple concepts I've been surprised to learn many well-intentioned people don't actually understand as well as they think they do. Today we're going to do Antifa, Anarchy, and Black Block. We'll start with Antifa. The president is called Antifa a radical left-wing domestic terrorist organization or some other garbage. I I don't read his tweets, but I get the gist. Who's Antifa? What do they want? How does it all intersect with Black Lives Matter? Antifa, or Antifa, is short for anti-fascism, and it's not an organization, but a philosophy. Uh, Philosophy Tube actually has a great video explaining this concept in depth. I highly encourage you to check it out. Put simply, anti-fascists believe that fascism should be opposed whenever and wherever it crops up. It has its roots in Europe in the pre-World War II era as a response to the rise of fascist governments. Considering how things in Europe ended up going, they were right to sound the alarm. A swelling of new Antifa organizing was seen towards the end of the 20th century in Europe and North America in response to the skinhead movement at the time and the KKK, uh, and then, obviously, now we're, we're seeing another rise in Antifa organizing uh, once again. Who is Antifa? Technically speaking, if you're listening to this podcast and are opposed to fascism, you're Antifa. But let's look at this practically, in terms of what Antifa does. Antifascists participate in a diversity of tactics to oppose fascism. 
This can include infiltrating fascist groups online, filming neo-Nazi protests to dox or reveal Nazi membership publicly, dissecting propaganda, informing the public of new fascist pipelines being created online, nonviolent organizing uh, like peaceful marches, and or, when necessary, direct confrontation. You don't need to be a declared anti-fascist organization to take an anti-fascist action. In La Crosse, Wisconsin, I believe it was in 2018, an alt-right figurehead was planning to speak at an event uh, nearby in Alaska. The community discovered this and spread that information like wildfire over social media. A counter-protest was organized uh, very quickly online, and a local organization began confirming attendees, then called the venue. So the size of the counter-protest had gotten so large that it required the speaker to purchase additional insurance in order to proceed with the event. They didn't have enough time before the event to purchase that insurance, and they were forced to cancel. So this is a great example of the decentralized nature of Antifa as a philosophy. This is a spontaneous community organization channeled by an anti-racism network to deplatform a speaker through nonviolent action. Nonviolence is generally perceived pretty positively by the country at large, and few people could argue with infiltrating online groups that are actively planning white supremacist actions. But what about direct confrontation? Antifa started getting more airtime a few years back when declared anti-fascists sucker-punched a couple alt-right figureheads in videos that quickly went viral. The goal of the individuals in question in incidents like these seemed to boil down to making fascists, or the alt-right uh, in general, afraid to organize publicly. So let's briefly address some common reactions to direct confrontation events. The first thing to point out is that when it comes to the freedom of speech argument, freedom of speech applies to the government enforcing laws prohibiting your speech or punishing you for it. It doesn't apply to individuals or communities deciding there should be consequences to that speech. No business, venue, or university is obligated to let you hold your event if business owners or members of that community decide they don't want you there. Something you'll see occasionally online is people saying, direct confrontation makes people view the victims sympathetically, though. Here's the thing. If the only thing holding you back from openly supporting a fascist was civility, you were already a fascist sympathizer, just quietly. The third uh, thing we run into a lot is uh, doxing is never okay. And I understand this uh, because doxing, revealing someone's personal details uh, to the internet at large, has led to horrible, unacceptable violence uh, committed on innocent people in the past. But let's remember who we're talking about in this instance. Getting a Nazi fired for being a Nazi is different than the internet bullying a teenager for a simple mistake. You don't get to be a neo-Nazi on the weekend and then expect to be able to go back to your regular life. The most complicated argument that comes up is the one of hypocrisy. Uh, you know, aren't people being hypocritical, using violence and fear to suppress an opposing viewpoint? And this is an important point to make, so... Uh, please listen closely. Fascists believe in oppressing and outright eliminating entire groups of people. Violence is their end goal. Direct confrontation by anti-fascists is therefore an act of community self-defense. If this idea is a little hard to process, I get it. A few years back, in a different era, I was forced to grapple with the argument, is it okay to punch a neo-Nazi in the face, even if they aren't doing anything violent, if they're just standing there? The answer is yes, right? Just because that Nazi isn't currently pulling a trigger doesn't mean that they wouldn't in a different situation or they wouldn't provide the encouragement that helps push someone else over the edge and pull the trigger, like we saw with the tragedy in Kenosha. 
or that that innocent neo-Nazi wouldn't support concentration camps where someone else was pulling the trigger. Listen, if a man came to town and he started trying to rally a lynch mob to hang members of a minority population, any, any population, pick your target, punching him in the face to get him to leave would be defending the community, right? I'm not talking about laws. I'm talking about what is morally right. While direct confrontation is most widely disseminated anti-fascist action because it helps generate clicks for the news, the majority of anti-fascist action is quiet and non-confrontational. Public shaming, peaceful marches. This is what I mean when I say if you're listening, you're probably already anti-fascist. Because it's a philosophy, not an organization, there's no one right way to be Antifa. In fact, anti-fascists argue amongst themselves about appropriate tactics constantly. You don't have to get into a street brawl to be taking action against fascism. One last note I wanted to make about Antifa takes us back to Portland and the Pacific Northwest. A lot of the national coverage discussing Antifa has centered on the Portland protests, and I've personally spoken to folks from Portland who don't understand why, or why some anti-fascist groups in Portland were already more militant and confrontational right at the start when George Floyd was murdered than we've seen anywhere else in the country. The cliff notes are this. Portland is a blue city in the midst of a red state. They're also home to an insane number of militias. Groups like the Boogaloo Boys, who actively root for a second civil war. Groups that are advocating for a day of the rope, which is when they rise up and hang all the race traitors. Groups that are calling for the elimination or reprogramming of people from the LGBTQIA plus community. These are views and beliefs they explicitly state, and over the past couple decades, they've often scheduled rallies or marches in Portland to help harden their members through confrontation. They come to town looking to get into a fight. Anti-fascist groups organized to disrupt and record these marches. Notice an important distinction here. No matter how these events ended up playing out, or how violent they got, anti-fascists organized in response to an outside threat coming into their community the militia's actions were proactive. Because some militia members had come to town specifically hoping for an excuse to brawl, fights began to break out at these events. A pattern of street brawls between Portland anti-fascists and far-right militia members emerged, spurred on by the fact that the majority of the Portland police are hired from outside the city of Portland. Some of those police officers are members of or support the same militias that were coming to town to brawl. Portland has spent years fighting the same sort of groups we are only now seeing rise to greater prominence in the rest of the country. That's why they were ready. It's also a small part of why the police were so aggressive in those first few weeks in their response to protests in Portland. For them, this was just the next chapter of a much longer story. How does all of this intersect with Black Lives Matter and the current swell of protests? Black Lives Matter believes that black people should be treated equally. Anti-fascists oppose governments and organizations that seek to oppress or eliminate groups of people deemed inferior. It just lines up. A lot of Black Lives Matter protesters are Antifa, and a lot of Antifa are anti-racists. We're in a historical moment where many of us are being forced to commit to anti-fascist action, rather than simply agreeing with the philosophical idea that fascism is probably bad. But many anarchists have been sounding the alarm on this for quite some time, so let's take a brief aside to discuss anarchy. I'm not going to get into theory here because I haven't read any of it. I want to talk about practical application. As early as a year ago, I saw anarchists as, you know, chaotic people who wanted to burn down the government, have riots in the streets, and return to survival of the fittest. 
I believe that because that's how anarchy is used conversationally and in the media. It was anarchy. The reality behind anarchy has been a surprisingly bright spot in an otherwise horrifying year. I now see anarchists primarily through the lens of mutual aid. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina, for example, communities were devastated and national nonprofits as well as the government struggled to mobilize at the scale required to provide the help these communities needed. A few anarchists showed up in New Orleans and asked community members what they needed most. Medical supplies, food, rescue missions, whatever it took. The community responded that what they actually needed was someone to get rid of the garbage. Sanitation workers hadn't come through since the hurricane, and piles of rotting garbage littered the streets, causing health and quality of life concerns. So the anarchists started there. Think of any disaster. Think of an earthquake so large it devastates an entire city. Is it the government who steps in first to help? Not usually. Often you'll see spontaneous organization of community members putting together search and rescue teams, you know, pooling food and other resources to make sure everyone gets by until help arrives, until the government can get there. This seems to be the core concept behind practical anarchy for me. And I know it's not the right definition, and I know anarchists will be in the comments explaining all the ways that I'm wrong, but practically speaking, anarchy has seemed to boil down to a belief that our community should rely on and help each other now rather than wait for the government to decide if they feel like helping and how. So anarchy is the, you know, volunteer medic corps that pull people out of tear gas and patch up scrapes and bruises, you know. At the protest, anarchy is the snacks and water that show up to every event. No idea how it gets there, but it's always there. It's people bringing what they have to help. Anarchy is the friend who showed up to the protests with a bike just to observe, and ended up standing to block intersections while the crowd marched, even though no one actually asked him to. Anarchy simply means not relying on the government and instead encouraging our communities to help themselves. There are a million different flavors of anarchists, and I have never met two that actually completely agree on their philosophy, so we're going to move on without getting any more in-depth. But I just want you to remember... Anarchy as a, as a political ideal is more often soup kitchens than Molotov cocktails. So this is going to take us to our third topic for the day, which is Black Block. There's a wonderful visual guide to Black Block that I'm going to be pulling from heavily, and I'll make sure to share it on our Twitter page. But when you thought of Antifa, you probably didn't think about a school teacher spending her spare time infiltrating neo-Nazi groups online to share plans for their rallies to the public. Now, when you thought of anarchists, you probably didn't think of a hipster handing out cold water to homeless people in the middle of an L.A. heat wave. When you heard both of those terms, you probably thought of people dressed in all black with bandanas over their faces, possibly holding shields and facing off against riot police. You were probably thinking of folks who look a lot like Black Block. Block, spelled B-L-O-C, is basically a way of dressing to identify a group. In Portland, you can see this uh, with mom block or dad block. They all dress in the same brightly colored shirt. For dad block in particular, a lot of them showed up with leaf blowers. That was their thing, to blow the tear gas away. Black block is a tactic utilized by protesters across the world for a variety of different causes. The main purpose of black block is to avoid or confound surveillance and identification by police. You dress in all black, covering your face and hair, carry a black bag. Any tattoos, piercings, or other identifiable features should be covered. 
Your bag and clothing shouldn't have any visible logos or pictures. If they do, they should be covered with black duct tape. It's about minimizing everything that can make you stand out into a crowd. It's about making a crowd blend together. Black Black isn't a unified group, but there are often groups within it, referred to as affinity groups. An affinity group is a small group of people, usually friends, who attend a protest or action together in block. Affinity groups are incredibly important for support, security, and long-term mental health awareness. You show up to an action together, you leave together, and you talk with each other afterward about what you went through. An affinity group is just a formal version of something we all do naturally. It's pretty common to gather a couple close friends to go with you to a protest. An affinity group is just the formal version of that. A group of close friends that you trust that all block up together. Why do people block up? Some mainstream media and social media framing would tell you that these are all the violent anarchists who show up to burn buildings down. And it's true that people who are anticipating, you know, planned agitation will often cover their faces. But it's also true that police often hunt protesters down days or weeks after events and arrest them simply for being present as a way to make a statement and intimidate other potential protesters. Blocking up isn't just about avoiding the sort of arrest yourself, but about making it harder for the state to hunt down other people in vulnerable or marginalized groups. Say a black student at a local university decides to get involved and put together an event, a short march in solidarity with the victim of a recent police shooting. It's the first time this student has ever participated in a protest action, and it's incredibly empowering. Hours after the official protest ends, things escalate, and several nearby businesses are damaged in what is later deemed a riot. That same organizer attends a different event the following night, just to watch, and the event, organized by someone else completely, ends up containing a group of people who choose to pull down a racist statue. Police might decide that the organizer from the first night, by merit of attending both actions, is a leader of the movement and a dangerous agitator. They may track them down, detain them, and question them to try and get information on other protest leaders. They might simply detain them for 24 hours without pressing charges, just to make a statement. If that organizer was blocked up, would this still play out? Probably, if they were the only one in Black Block. The police could track them through security and traffic cameras until the organizer got far enough away to de-block. And then even if they did so off-camera, if there's not much foot traffic in the area... Police could potentially get a reduced list of possible suspects from cameras around and then cross-reference that with a smaller list against social media posts. What if there were a hundred people who showed up in Black Block? It's a lot more difficult then. At the end of the day, we live in a surveillance state. If the police want to identify and detain you badly enough and they're willing to invest the resources and time, they will eventually succeed. Black Block is about making it challenging enough that police don't try to hunt down people for frivolous reasons like jaywalking or being present at two protests in a row just because they can. At the protests and riots I've been to, I've seen Black Block doing security, turning away outside agitators, identifying cop spotter positions, de-escalating arguments, circulating food and water, and yes, smashing windows and starting fires. Anyone who opposes the police and state can choose to block up at any time for any reason, whether it's to protect themselves or to help protect other members of the community. To review, Antifa is a philosophy, anarchy is a political ideology, and Black Bloc is a tactic. 
Antifa is anybody who is opposed to fascism and willing to take action, running the range from surveillance to peaceful actions like marches to direct confrontation. Anarchy is a political philosophy focused on communities coming together to help each other rather than relying on the government. Black Bloc is a tactic designed to obstruct and interfere with the state's ability to identify and track protesters. None of these are organizations. None of them have a membership or a specific set of rules you have to follow to be involved. All of them argue with themselves and each other constantly on what tactics are best fit to various situations. These definitions are almost meaningless in the end when we look at these protests because a crowd of protesters could be made up of people who are one, two, or all three of those things. And at the end of the day, most people using those labels in the media are using them dishonestly. They're trying to intentionally confuse the issue, muddy the waters, and get people stuck in endless arguments about definitions so we all lose track of what's really important, why these protests are happening. That's what we need to remember. People are upset about the disproportionate violence used by the police against minority populations and black people in particular. In response, local governments have doubled down on police departments using violence on those same communities when they march in the streets. And a proto-fascist government is taking advantage of the situation, fanning the flames of racial tensions in a bid to acquire even more power. Hopefully, an understanding of these three terms will make some of those actions even more transparent. That's all I've got for today. Those are all ridiculously broad strokes. It's certain that I got some of the details wrong. Check out Philosophy Tube's video on Antifa for a deeper dive on the history and philosophy of anti-fascism. Uh, check out our Twitter page where I'll be posting at Heading Northers Visual Guide to Black Block. And check out your local protest to see Anarchy in Action. Uh, next episode, we'll start getting a little more specific. Sorry that this was uh, so abstract. But for now, I have dinner to make. So my name's Brian. This has been Riot Etiquette. And remember, pinkies out on those Molotovs, folks. It's only polite.